Welcome back to the Modern Data Show. For today's episode, we have Chris Ricomini with us, who is a software engineer, an author, an investor, and an advisor with more than a decade of experience working in tech companies like PayPal, LinkedIn, and WePay. He started his career as a software engineer at PayPal back in 2007, after which he transitioned into a data role as a senior data scientist in LinkedIn in 2011. At LinkedIn, he was one of the creators of Apache Samza, which is a LinkedIn streaming system infrastructure built on the top of Apache Kafka, similar to Storm or Spark Streaming and Flink, etc. Uh, six years after working at LinkedIn, he joined VPay, a payment platform where most of his time was spent on running the data infrastructure and managing the engineering team. Chris also recently co-authored a book called The Missing Readme, a book that have golden nuggets for budding software engineers. Welcome, Chris, to the show. We are excited to have you as a guest. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So first of all, Chris, tell us a little bit more about your journey from being a software engineer, you know, to your later year, year roles as, you know, data engineer and, you know, leading data engineering teams. So tell us about a little bit more about that journey. Yeah. So when I started my career, I actually started kind of more on the data science side of the house and really doing uh, data visualization and kind of exploration of PayPal. So these had a lot of data, especially transaction data. I was in their fraud team and they just didn't understand what was going on a lot of the time. And they had so many payment flows that we did a lot of visualization to kind of just see what was happening. And when I switched over to LinkedIn, I spent you know a bunch of time uh, kind of in the, on the data science side, um, but quickly realized that a lot of the high leverage work that was getting done at the time was really more on the infrastructure side of things. So simply adding more data to the model, getting more features, speeding up the model training cycles, and so I switched over to engineering pretty quickly at LinkedIn and got involved in Hadoop um, and converting some of their machine learning models, specifically their people you may know algorithm to Hadoop um, and kind of productionalizing it. So kind of once I had that epiphany, um, I was down the road to en on engineering, but I was spending more time on kind of infrastructure development. And really that's most of what I did while I was at LinkedIn. When I joined WePay, I kind of, WePay was a much smaller company, and philosophically, I wanted to keep WePay from developing some of like the not invented here syndrome that I had seen at LinkedIn, and also just the data and really infrastructure ecosystem had evolved in such a way that now there were vendors, there were you know people you could pay to get reasonable uh, infrastructure, and so my role at WePay kind of shifted from more infrastructure development to more of a, a data what I would say is a data engineering role at the time it wasn't called that I think. Uh, sort of like pre that term, but more of a data engineering role. So it was like setting up the data pipeline, uh, using cloud data warehouse. We were very early into BigQuery, uh, for example, very early into Airflow. And then we were very early into Debezium as well. And that was kind of our data pipeline. It was sort of those three things. Really, it was like Debezium, Kafka, BigQuery, and then Airflow as our orchestrator for you know running queries in the cloud. Amazing. And you know, uh, Chris, so what do you think have changed like for good or for bad in the data engineering since the days you worked back in 2007 to what you're seeing now? And, you know, apart from the whole explosion of tools that we have. <laughs> well, that, I think that was the thing I was going to say is for both for good and for bad. The amount of options you have are, are pretty staggering. When I, when I started, you know, back in the day, there really wasn't a, a lot of choice. <clears throat> Even when I was looking for an orchestrator uh, at, at WePay going back seven years ago, you know, there was Airflow, there was Luigi. Airflow was fairly new. And then other than that, I mean, we were back in the days of like Uzi and Azkaban and stuff. So that, that now there's 
there's three modern orchestrators all duking it out that are all great, you know? So I think, I think that's definitely one thing. Um, in terms of other things that have, that have changed, I think things are less integrated now, I think as a result of the tools and that, that can be a little bit frustrating, I think for, for users, for me personally as well. So a lot of the work that I've, I find that we were doing toward the end was really like more about gluing <laughs> all these different solutions together. Yeah. Those are the two things that come to mind. And what, what do you think from a people perspective, what have changed from an organization perspective in terms of, you know, now we are seeing mature data teams set up in various organizations. It, uh, data engineering was kind of an ad hoc thing, you know, few years back, but it has become so much mainstream. So what do you think have changed from a people perspective? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. Actually, two things come to mind. So one of them is just organizationally, one of the things that I was personally pushing for quite a bit at WePay toward the end was just essentially the federation of the tools that we were running. So we had a centralized data engineering team, in my opinion. Having a centralized data engineering team just doesn't scale beyond a certain point. And so you need to start having other teams help you out with some of that stuff in order for them to help you out, whether that's like curating pipelines or tagging metadata or, you know, uh, handling data quality check, whatever it is, they need to have the tooling in order to do that. So the data engineering team kind of shifts to be more like a dev tools, DevOps, dev platform kind of a team that's providing the tools that, that enable the entire org to kind of be their own data engineers in a way. So I think that's one thing organizationally is, is a federation of, of uh, a lot of these tools and pipelines. I think the second one is sort of this, this advent of the analytics engineer, uh, which is sort of like, I think a fairly new term, but when, once I kind of saw that, it immediately clicked with me because we had that pattern at, at WePay where we had these, uh, I think we called them business analysts that kind of sat near the data engineers, but were much more data focused. And I think at the time, that relationship that we had be between the business analysts and the Data engineers are like very amorphous, like who owns what, where things should sit, who, who's doing, who's doing the queries and, and who's owning the DBT and blah, blah, blah. Right. I think that stuff is starting to get hammered out a bit more and analytics engineers are really carving out a space and what it means to be an analytics engineer, what it means to do that work, what kind of tools they have and so on. So I think that's for, for the, for the good. Um, I think DBT is probably driving a lot of that stuff, but yeah, I think organizationally and wise, those are, those are two things that I see, I think at a, at a meta level, we just see more specialization, ever increasing specialization, right? So the data engineers, there's now business analysts, there's now data scientists. If you go back, I think you mentioned 2007, if you go back to 2007, there's one person doing all that, right? Like the data science team at LinkedIn used to have a, a state of the union thing that they would put together <laughs> that was like all the business metrics and stuff for a given year. They were also doing the data science stuff. And then they were also you know, working with the infrastructure engineers on, on transformation and ETL and whatnot. So we've kind of grown a lot in that regard. Yeah, and amazing. And Chris, you have been an early investor in a lot of data companies like, you know, Confluent, Prefect, Startree, Stemma, Anomalo, Transform, and many more, right? And what's, what's your hypothesis in this space? You know, as an investor, what's your hypothesis? So <laughs> my hypothesis is I think essentially there are a bunch of different categories of, of data tooling that I, so at a meta level, I think my hypothesis is that, you know, the data ecosystem and modern data stack, it's going to figure itself out and it's going to kind of become ubiquitous across all companies. Um, we, we spent maybe the last decade or two building out a lot of the infrastructure, right? We, we got the cloud data warehouse, we've got Kafka, we've got, you know, all the AWS and GCP stuff that, that you get from that. 
And now I think we're building out a bunch of the tooling that, that kind of is a level or two up from that. So data quality checking, data catalogs, you know, streaming transformation, stuff like that. Um, so there's going to be a bunch of these tools. And so I think for me, it's just about figuring out what categories that I'm interested in and then hooking up and finding teams and products that I like in those categories. I think I had a, a list, you know, maybe 10 or 12 items long, headless BI, reverse ETL, right? Stream processing, real-time data warehousing. This is like on and on and on, data catalogs, data mesh, on and on, right? Um, now there's data products and data modeling stuff happening. So that's sort of what I would say is my cobbled together hypothesis. I think in practicality, a lot of it is just sort of opportunistic. A lot of those early ones you mentioned is just people I knew in my network and stuff. So I got really lucky, right? Working with just fantastic people like Kishore at Startree or, you know, uh, Jeremiah from, from Prefect, which is one of the companies you mentioned. It's just uh, uh, somebody I worked with on Airflow, open source, met him, you know, on the mailing list. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of kind of less structured than it might appear. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, what would be your advice to, you know, other fellow investors who are looking to find these hot data companies, like any, any specific word of uh, advice you would share? Oh gosh. I don't, I, I have a hard time giving advice because I feel like uh, everybody's story is, is a little bit different in terms of how they approach it, how they got there. So yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant to give give advice, especially to fellow investors. They probably are, are doing <laughs> do, do it as well as, as I am or better, right? But I guess philosophically, I, I just, I try as best I can to, to be, to help people out and, and be unselfish and, you know, sort of go in there knowing that <laughs> things, things aren't, aren't always going to work out. It'll be fine. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, one of the other things that we keep hearing a lot uh, is, that and that's a, that's a question I would need. Uh, you know, I would appreciate your thoughts on is, is the modern data stack suffering from the symptom of you know, hey, I've got the solution. Now let's go out and find a problem. I think there are definitely shades of that. I could point some of the things that I just rattled off in that list. There, I think, uh, in terms of categories, are, are I think to have that symptom. What I will say, I'll pick on one, right? So reverse ETL is one that personally I'm not a huge fan of. I, I see pragmatically that there is some value there and that, you know, it is solving some problems, but I just think, in my opinion, there are, there are better long-term architecture and solutions to, to solve the, the problems that they're talking about there. I think Eric Sammer, for example, uh, has done a good job of kind of outlining his, the, the shot, the thoughts that I share, he, he's posted on that sort of extensively. He's the, the CEO of, of Decodable, which is sort of a real-time streaming platform that in, in my opinion, that style of architecture is more well-suited uh, for a number of reasons to, to solve the kind of problems that reverse ETL purports to solve. So I think there's, there's definitely shades of that in some places, but in, in actuality, I think most of the problems that these vendors and all, all this chaos is coming from are real problems. Like data quality is like a real problem. You know, this ETL, moving data around, transformation, like that's all real stuff. Even some of the little stuff that's a little more sketchy, like the, the, the metrics, headless BI stuff, I think is, is, is a real thing. Like I have been at organizations where no one agrees on revenue. I, you know, going back to that, that comment I made about the state of the union at LinkedIn, uh, you know, we were cooking up these metrics sort of on the ad hoc on the fly. And then even year to year, they were, they were evolving sometimes. And so agreeing on what like a metric is and having it live in one place is actually a real thing. So I think I, I would, I would push back 
by and large against the idea that a lot of this stuff is sort of a, a problem in search of a solution. You know, I've been at organizations that don't have data quality checks. It's not fun, right? I, I promise you it's not fun. <laughs> I've been at, at organizations yeah. that have unstable orchestrators and, and can't execute tasks and, you know, on and on. I've been at organizations that are rolling their own ETL. And it's just, it's all bad. <laughs> it's all bad. So yeah. I think they're solving real problems for the most part. Um, yeah, right. I know I agree. And, uh, you know, you talked about the streaming a little bit, but I'll get back to that in a while. Uh, but before I jump into that, another question, uh, another follow-up question on that. So recently in one of uh, one of the previous episodes, one of our guests said that there would be a lot of consolidation that we'll see in the data space because yeah. you see this feature overlap. And what we are seeing, you know, in the example that you just mentioned about uh, reverse ETL, we are seeing a lot of ETL companies having reverse ETL as a part of the offering itself. What are your thoughts on consolidation? 100%. As an investor. Yeah, yeah 100% agree. You know, I, I could be proven wrong. And a lot of these verticals could end up being, you know, multi-billion dollar verticals. But I think it's far more likely that there are going to be some winners that end up slurping up a lot of these verticals and you end up with a more integrated solution, which is just a better experience. Like nobody wants to go to eight different cloud UIs across eight different vendors to manage their data stack. Like that's just not what they want to do. Uh, that's not what I want to do, right? Um, so I think it's it's highly likely that there will be some some consolidation. I think you're already seeing some of this with the orchestrators. You know, Airflow, for example, oh, yeah. slurped up. I forget the name of, but Marquez essentially ostensibly was the the company, Julian's company. And I think orchestrators are well positioned. You know, I kind of thought for a while maybe the data catalog stuff would uh, would go that way as well. Kind of remains to be seen, but. There, there's a lot of affinity in the orchestration layer around lineage and data catalogs and 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 that kind of thing. So um, that kind of seems to be the running narrative. I also see uh, a lot of stuff happening with data quality. I think that's another interesting area with a lot of directions you can go. So that's like the great expectations, Anomalo, Monte Carlo, there's <laughs> Big Eye, there's, there's a lot of those too, right? So which direction? I, I don't know but I think it's going to happen. And sort of prevailing wisdom is probably the orchestration layers are going to start. They're also well-funded, right? So you look at like how much money Astronomer has or Prefect. And I don't know the case funding for, for Dagster, but let's just say just from Astronomer, you can see that they've got a good chunk of cash. So um, highly likely, I guess the other direction would be like these larger companies like Databricks or something, right? So we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think consolidation is likely. Yeah. One, one of the other trends that we are also seeing uh, very often in the modern data space are projects being developed in big tech companies like LinkedIn's and Uber's and the lifts of the world transforming into a full-fledged business. We have seen some good success with Confluent, you know, Stemma emerging from Project Amundsen. Uh, and I think so you personally have seen a lot of these journeys firsthand itself, right? So why do you think, first of all, that's a great idea? And what are the common pitfalls that you think uh, a pro, you know, an engineering or a, you know, engineering person who's leading these projects in those organizations should be aware of what, what, what would be those yeah. kind of pitfalls to avoid? Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a really good question and probably something that's not talked about enough. Um, the most common pitfall that I see when uh, a, a team is trying to bring an open source project from a company, you know, that, into its own startup is essentially having multiple factions within the same project that either manifest as multiple different startups for the same open source project or this adversarial system where you have this, the startup 
with half the team members and then the other half of the team members are still at the parent company and, and the, the incentives kind of no longer align on like the direction, the roadmap, what needs to get built and when, the velocity of the project and so on. So I think though that, that pattern is very common <laughs> and it's, it's, really, it's really detrimental to, to the project and the success of the companies, frankly. So that, that is by far the biggest thing. I think navigating that, figuring out how to deal with it is going to be unique for each individual situation. It depends on the team members, you know, how many people there are involved, sharing incentives and stuff like that. But figuring that model out is just critical, uh, just critical. Because if you get into a situation where you no longer control your open source project or you know, people are forking or reverting each other's commits, which I've actually seen, like <laughs> it, it gets really, really nasty. So that, that's the, the, the big highlight uh, to me. I think for the most part, something that, you know, on the positive side is most of the folks that take those open source projects and go and, and, and spin them out, usually the company seems to support them pretty nicely. It's usually amicable. It's not usually kind of rancorous, uh, which you would think is kind of surprising when you're taking like a chunk of talented engineers from an organization. In some cases, the company will invest. In some cases, they will not. Um, so I think it's just a fr it's worth being aware that it may or may not happen, right? So that's actually a healthy thing is, is the way companies have navigated this. The individual people in the company is, is sometimes tougher, so. Yeah, so as an extension to this question, another question that comes to my mind is, uh, what are your thoughts in terms of the future of the modern data stack from a open source versus a commercial offering perspective. You know, we have seen, you know, let's take example of even the ETL space. You have seen Fivetran emerging as a kind of a leader in the commercial offering, but at the same time, you have got, you know, tools like Maltano and Airbyte who are competing really hard. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest, uh, if specifically from an ETL perspective, one of the biggest kind of selling point for these open source solution is addressing this long tail of connectors, which is difficult to be offered by a commercial offering, right? And uh, two questions there. One, what's your take on open source being a direction for the modern data stack? And two, if you were to pick investing in, in an ETL company now, what would, what would you be looking for? What is it that's there in the ETL space that you think is still unsolved? If you see Apache, you know, you'll have your checkbook ready. What would be that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll start with the second question first. The, the stuff that's kind of unsolved, or if I were, you know, really excited about an ETL system that I came across, one of them is, is I, I'm a huge fan of real-time ETL. So anything real-time, I'm, I'm about it. I hate the idea. I don't hate, hate is a strong word, but, but I've lived in a world with batch ETL and I've lived in a world with real-time ETL and the real-time ETL world is definitely better. I think in terms of spaces, uh, SaaS ETLs, I think is something that needs more attention. So as we, you know, I, I spent some time with a Jamstack last year and you know, I had this epiphany that like, we're, we're getting near a point where you could build software products, which are essentially just a bunch of SaaS glued together, right? But then the, the ETL uh, stuff stops kind of becoming ETLing from your, you know, LTP database and your event system. And it becomes much more about just ETLing all the, the, getting all the data from all the various SaaS vendors you have into yet another SaaS vendor, which is probably some cloud data warehouse, right? Um, and 
you know, there are definitely systems that do this. I would argue that some of these are more batch-based uh, and less friendly. I think there's some innovative thinking going on in this area. So that, that's definitely something that would, it does get me excited. I've had some recent conversations with folks that, that got me kind of really thinking in that space. To your first question around open source, I think the caveat here is just, I, I have, <laughs> I'm so steeped in, in the open source world, it's kind of hard for me to not think about things in that frame of mind. So I'm, of course, very, you know, very pro open source and, and into it. But just at the same time, but at the same time, you are invested heavily into commercial offering as well. Yeah, but but many of the commercial offerings have open source, right? So uh, I would, I probably the the majority of them, right? So Tabular is Iceberg, Confluent is Kafka, Prefect is Prefect, uh, StarTree is Pino, right? Like these are almost all open source to SaaS vendor type companies, and I think that model is pretty reasonable. I think if you want to do open source in say, you know, the next five, 10 years, simply coming to the table with, I'm going to do open source and then I'm going to have cloud hosted open source is probably not going to be enough. I think you're going to need to build something a little bit more than that. Um, so the model of something like Elastic or Mongo or Confluent, I think is not going to work as well because the space is so much more competitive now. <laughs> Um, than, than it was, you know, 10, five, 10 years ago. And I, in my opinion, I think the way that's going to look is people are going to have to start uh, solving for like use cases or verticals. So it, it's taking open source and applying it to fintech or to health or to IoT or to edge computing or to like some specific vertical, I, I think is going to have to kind of, I think that's going to be the way forward. That's my personal theory. Um, we'll see. The, the reason I don't yeah. think that just cloud hosting uh, open source projects is going to work is because like literally everyone else does that now. And it's like the, the cookie cutter pattern of like looking at what Mongo and Confluent and Elastic and all these other companies did. It, it, it's the, the velocity on that is so fast now that you're instantly going to have N competitors. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, you need to offer something more than just that. Uh, one thing you just mentioned, like, you know, the real-time ETL, right? And uh, Chris, you you have been one of the creators of Apache Samza, which is a mind-blowing project, by the way. Uh, but we haven't seen a lot of progress in terms of commercial offerings around event processing or complex event processing. You know, S per CEP was written 20, 25 years back, right? Yeah. And real-time processing is still far behind in terms of maturity in which we have seen with respect to the batch processing like ETL. Tell us, tell us from an engineering perspective, why is that the reason? <laughs> Man, it's, it's, it's pretty easy answer. It's really hard. <laughs> so, so I think in, in, in reality, I think what you're saying is true. However, I would point to, uh, there's a lot of work being done in this space now from, from vendors, right? So I would argue there has been some progress made from like the stuff that we did with Samza to now. I think there's kind of two things holding back the streaming space. One of them, I think we're on the cusp of solving. The other one, not yet. So the one that I think we're on the cusp of solving is just the operating real-time stuff is just a pain in the butt. It's kind of, you know, more like operating microservices than it is like operating batch stuff. So it's, it's probably more fair to compare stream processing and streaming to, to you know, microservices. But then they're they're very stateful and they're kind of finicky. And whereas microservices, you have to generally process as many queries per second as you get 
as many queries per second, but with, with asynchronous processing, stuff can build up and you can have, you know, back pressure and stuff. So suddenly you might be have, have to process a workload that looks a lot more like batch than like, like real time. So there's an operational aspect to it. What I, I see there is just like the vendors and cloud hosting stuff that's going to solve that. So, so you will pay someone to deal with a lot of those problems. The second problem that I don't think we've really cracked the nut on and this is the one that's probably more important, frankly, is, is the usability aspect of it. Um, you know, everybody likes SQL. <laughs> like writing SQL is great. Writing SQL on streaming is complicated because of time, right? So you have late arrival. Really, you, you want to do aggregations across windows and time. And then there's just all these complexities around semantics and late arrivals. And you get into these really elegant kind of models where like the data flow folks, for example, from Google have come up with really beautiful ways of dealing with aggregation in a, in a streaming environment. I'm kind of being high level here that you can definitely- Yeah, you kind out. of, so basically talking about stuff like uh, the, the, the data flow, the, the exactly. flow algorithms. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Right. But, but then like to, to explain it, you need like, <laughs> like a tensor of, of dimension and space and there's all these animations and stuff. And it's just, it's, it's not something that's approachable for your average, you know, application engineer that's trying to get a job done or business analyst or business analytics engineer that's trying to do something. It's just way, way too complicated. And then you overlay on top of that, just some of the physical stuff that's leaking in like partitions and, you know, event arrival ordering and transactionality guarantees. And it gets to be really hard to build reliable systems if you don't know what you're doing. Um, so I think kind of the holy grail in this space is really figuring out a model that works out of the box intuitively the way that people expect it to so that they can just use it. Um, I think the, <laughs> the alternative is maybe that stream processing just becomes so ubiquitous and such a cool kid kind of a thing that people are motivated to learn all these complexities. And, and you know, they, suddenly the application engineer does understand about late arrivals and windowed aggregations and sliding versus tumbling windows and so on. Um, but I think realistically, a lot of the work that, that needs to happen, and this is like, you know, PhD, postdoc kind of work, as well as vendor work, is just figuring out a model that, you know, application engineers can use to build streaming applications that's not prohibitively complex. Yeah. So I think so one of the, you know, one of the very nice examples of what you have just mentioned in terms of like SQL on a streaming data from an end user perspective, I think so a couple of examples that we have personally seen working really well is an example of Confluent where they have this thing called KSQL DB mm -hmm. and a very parallel to that is what you have called this tool commercial vendor offering called materialize.com. Yep, uh, yep. I think so, you know, I, I personally had a chance to try out both of these, uh, you know, database, streaming databases and, you know, the experience was mind-blowing. So I think so we are getting there. Yeah, I, I hope so. And people are really love materialized, right? Like that's, that's one that's definitely comes up in this conversation. And I think the real-time, you know, streaming database kind of system is definitely new. Um, but if we could, if we could crack that nut and if, if real-time DBs end up being the solution to this problem, um, that's huge, right? That, that really is, is a game changer. And there's, there, like you said, there are a bunch of these actually Gunnar Morling, uh, the, the guy who he's just, he's a fantastic engineer. You should absolutely follow him on Twitter. He runs Debezium yeah. and a number of other projects, but he had a, a, a thread, uh, I think earlier this week where he listed up just all the different startups and open source projects in this space now, like QuantaDB, which is I think from uh, Cash or Block or whatever the company's called now. And 
you know, listed materialize and Delta stream and on and on. And there's just tons and tons of them. Um, so that's promising, right? Um, hopefully, hopefully it works out. <laughs> Amazing. So, you know, Chris, so we are towards the end of our episode and, you know, before letting you go, I'll just ask you one last question. And that question is, what is that one company in the modern data space, apart from DBT, that you wish you would have invested in? <laughs> you know, I, I never, um, I don't, I didn't really have the opportunity on, on this particular company, but I'm really coming around to .db. I, I, I was really much a skeptical, a, a skeptic, and I've had a number of, I guess, trolley tweets about it that, and the information and response I've got from that has been super useful. So I'm just really impressed with that project. And so I think, again, that's an early days one, but I would love, I would have loved to have been involved in, in, uh, in one of those companies. So, um, that's sort of my, my go-to right now. Uh, you might, you might not, you might not expect that reading my, my tweets. Cause it's all complaining about like <laughs> security and, and, uh, you know, what's the big deal and stuff, but I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely, they're winning me over. They're winning me over on that one. I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, in ways I hadn't, I hadn't thought about. So, yeah. Nice. Amazing. So, uh, I think so that's, that's pretty much it from my side, Chris. Thank you so much for having this lovely candid conversation with us. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.